Hello, everyone, and welcome to Chills, a weekly podcast where we discuss the paranormal, true crime, conspiracies, and anything creepy. I'm your host, Preston Porce. And I'm Nina Cardona. This week, we have two true crime stories for you. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of Chills. week's episode, I will be covering the story about The Watcher. In June 2014, in Westfield, New Jersey, Derek Broaddus and Maria bought a $1.3 million home. This house was built in 1905, which included six bedrooms. Maria was raised in Westfield, a few blocks from where her new home is located. Derek and Maria were in their 40s with three kids, so they figured this home would be a perfect place to raise their children, who were ages 5, 8, and 10 years old. Derek was alone one night at the Westfield house, doing some renovations before they moved in. He went and checked the mail, not expecting much, since they hadn't officially moved in yet. This is when he sees a handwritten letter. The letter reads, Dearest new neighbor at 657 Boulevard, Allow me to welcome you to the neighborhood. How did you end up here? Did 657 Boulevard call to you with its force within? 657 Boulevard has been the subject of my family for decades now, and as it approaches its 110th birthday, I have been put in charge of watching and waiting for its second coming. My grandfather watched the house in the 1920s, and my father watched it in the 1960s. It is now my time. Do you know the history of the house? Do you know what lies within the walls of 657 Boulevard? Why are you here? I will find out. I see already that you have flooded 657 Boulevard with contractors so that you can destroy the house as it's supposed to be. Tisk tisk tisk. Bad move. You don't want to make 657 Boulevard unhappy. You have children. I have seen them. So far, I think there are three that I have counted. Is there more on the way? Do you need to fill the house with the young blood I requested? Better for me. Was your old house too small for the growing family? Or was it greed to bring me your children? Once I know their names, I will call to them and draw them to me. Who am I? There are hundreds and hundreds of cars that drive by 657 Boulevard each day. Maybe I'm in one. Look at all the windows you can see from 657 Boulevard. Maybe I am in one. Look out any of the many windows in 657 Boulevard at all the people who stroll by each day. Maybe I am one. Welcome my friends, welcome. Let the party begin. And they signed the letter as The Watcher. The envelope had no return address. Derek figured whoever wrote the letter would have had to have dropped it off themselves. As soon as he was finished reading the letter, he turned off all the lights inside of the house, hoping if the watcher was watching him, he wouldn't be able to see him. He then quickly called the police. When the police arrived, the officer read the letter and was just as puzzled as Derek was. 
The police officer asked Derek if he had any enemies, then advised Derek to move some of the smaller construction equipment inside in case the watcher tries to break inside the house using it as a tool. After the officer left, Derek hurried back home to his family. They were still staying in the previous house. Derek told Maria, his wife, what had happened and they immediately contacted the couple that previously owned the house, John and Andrea Woods. I read somewhere that said they were um, retired scientists and I thought that was cool. Just like you, but not retired. Maybe I can be next year. In the email, they asked the Woods if they had an idea who the watcher was. And they specifically included the part where it said, I asked the Woods to bring me young blood, and it looks like they listened. Andrea replied the following morning and said, A few days before we had moved out, we had also received a letter from the watcher. She then mentioned she found the letter a little odd, but she ended up throwing it out because in the 23 years that she had lived there, nothing like that had ever occurred. So she didn't give it much thought or take it seriously. But she did mention that the letter had also stated that the watcher had been watching the house for over some time now. She also did not feel threatened by the letter when she received it. In that house, she felt completely safe. They wouldn't even lock the doors. Which to me is just crazy. The same day, Andrea and her husband John went with Mary to the police station to file the police report. They ended up talking to a detective about their situation. Detective Leonardo Lugo decided to take the case. He advised Maria not to tell anyone about the letter, not even the neighbors, because they are now all suspects. As the days passed, Derek and Maria were very careful. Whenever they would go over to their new house, they would always worry about the children. If the children weren't in their sight, they would call out for them not to wander off. A couple days later, they had received a second letter. This time it was Maria who found it. When she saw it, she immediately called the cops. The letter read, Welcome again to your new home at 657 Boulevard. The workers have been busy and I have been watching you unload carfuls of your personal belongings. The dumpster is a nice touch. Have they found what is in the walls yet? In time they will. I am pleased to know your names now and the name of the young blood you have brought to me. You certainly say their names often. 657 Boulevard is anxious for you to move in. It has been years and years since the young blood ruled the hallway of the house. Have you found all the secrets it holds yet? Will the young blood play in the basement or are they too afraid to go down there alone? I would be very afraid if I were them. It is far away from the rest of the house. If you were upstairs, you would never hear them scream. Will they sleep in the attic, or will you all sleep on the second floor? Who has the bedrooms facing the street? I'll know as soon as you move in. It will help me to know who is in which bedroom, then I can plan better. All of the windows and doors in 657 Boulevard allow me to watch you and track you as you move through the house. Who am I? I am the watcher and have been in control of 657 Boulevard for the better part of two decades now. The Woods family turned it over to you. It was their time to move on and kindly sold it when I asked them to.
I pass by many times a day. 657 Boulevard is my job, my life, my obsession. And now you are too, broadest family. Welcome to the product of your greed. Greed is what brought the past three families to 657 Boulevard. And now it has brought you to me. Have a happy moving in day. You know I will be watching. They realized he spelled their name wrong, which means he had been watching them and overheard someone call their name. After this, Derek and Maria stopped bringing their children to the house. And because of this, a couple weeks later, they received another letter stating, Where have you gone to? 657 is missing you. They have received multiple letters by this point. This really got to Derek and Maria. Derek would cancel his work trips. The once happy couple was always arguing. They had to take medication to fall asleep. Derek fell into a deep depression. Maria was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder and she had to start seeing a therapist. Derek and Maria decided to stay with Maria's mom so they technically never moved into the house, even though they were still paying for it. So now let's go over the theories on who the Watcher is. The first theory is the Langfords. Peggy Langford was in her 90s, and several of her adult children, who were in their 60s, lived with her. They were suspects because they were their neighbors. And in the letters, the Watcher describes being able to see the children painting on an easel which was on the porch, but it would have been hidden by some vegetation. But the Langford's house had a pretty good view of it. In one of the letters it states, I am pleased to know your names now and the name of the young bloods you have brought to me. You certainly say their names often. The Langford's house was close enough for them to hear. The Langfords were described as the neighbors as odd but harmless. The younger Langford, Michael, didn't work, so he was basically there all day, and which is why they thought he could be the watcher. They had also lived there since the 60s, which is how long the watcher has been observing the house. So Maria and Derek contact a private investigator. Baron Chambliss, a veteran detective in the Westfield Police, was asked to look at the case. He stalked the neighbors and did a background check on the Langfords, but he couldn't find anything. What he did find was that Michael had been diagnosed with schizophrenia as a young man. He would do strange things like peeking through their windows or walking into their backyard, but soon he was ruled out. Investigators decided to run a DNA analysis on the letter and surprisingly they came to the conclusion that the DNA belonged to a woman. This is when they turned their attention to Abby Langford, Michael's sister, who worked as a real estate agent. In order to determine if it was her DNA on the letter, they needed her DNA to compare it to. So what the private investigator Baron Chambliss decided to do was he went to her place of work. He talked to security guard there and they were able to take DNA off of Abby's water bottle. Unfortunately, the DNA did not match. Suspect number two. Around 11 p.m. one night, Chambliss was with his partner and they were sitting in a van which was parked near 657 Boulevard. This is when they witnessed a car stopped in front of the house. It was parked there long enough for them to get suspicious of it. 
They were able to run the license plate and they found it belonged to a young woman in a town nearby. They found out that her boyfriend lived on the same block as 657. They questioned the young woman and this is when she told Chambliss that her boyfriend was into playing some dark video games. There is a specific video game which he plays as a character named The Watcher. So at this point, there are a lot of red flags going on. Even though the DNA they found on the letter belonged to a female, they figured that it could have belonged to his girlfriend. The boyfriend was not there when they were questioning his girlfriend, so they decided to call him and ask him to come in for an interview, which he agreed to, but never showed up. Unfortunately, Chambliss had to drop the case and ruled him out as a suspect because there wasn't enough physical evidence to interrogate him. Honestly, I think he sounds pretty suspicious and it sucks that they couldn't go further with that investigation. Suspect number three, Derek and Maria. Remember, this house was a $1.3 million home. Derek did not come from a wealthy family. The neighbors were thinking that after they initially purchased the home, they realized they could not afford the house, which is why they would have fabricated the story of having a stalker watch the house. Not to mention, several neighbors had also received a letter from someone claiming to be the watcher. Soon, Derek confessed that he had written the letters to the neighbors. Derek decided to write those letters to his neighbors because he was tired of the rumors they were spreading. And he just wanted them to feel what he was feeling. In 2016, only two years after they purchased their house, they decided to put it back on the market. The only problem was that no one wanted to buy it. There were so many rumors circulating about the house that no one was interested. They decided to host an open house. Surprisingly, they had a good amount of people there. They also had a sign-in sheet for whoever entered and they compared the different handwritings to the letters they were receiving, but they did not find a match. There was one person interested in the house thinking he would be able to get it for a lot cheaper than they originally paid for it. But once he met with the real estate agent, they had to disclose the letters with anyone interested in buying the house. After that, the man ended up not following through with the purchase. Out of options, they decided to turn to their real estate lawyer who wanted to sell the lot to a developer. What their idea was would be to tear down the house and build developments in its place. 657 Boulevard was one of the biggest lots in the neighborhood, so they figured it would be a good idea. In order to do this, they had to get permission from the Westfield Planning Board. They declined the offer because in order to have two lots there, they both would have to be 70 feet wide. Unfortunately, the two lots would have only been 67.6 feet wide, so they barely missed it. On July 1st, the house was finally sold. The buyers remain anonymous to this day, but honestly, it's for their own safety. As for who the watcher is, the mystery is still unsolved. Why do creepypastas spread so easily? Is there really a secret society sourcing codebreakers on Reddit? What's the best way to monetize your local cryptid? Hi, I'm Sigra, host of Tiny Terror. Join me every Thursday as I attempt to answer these questions and more in bite-sized episodes you can fit into your morning commute. We'll sift through unsolved true crime cases, paranormal events, and any and all other things spine-chilling and mind-thrilling. 
Listen now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever else podcasts are found. See you there. It's called The Phantom Killer. His murders are known as the Texarkana Moonlight Murders. Hollywood notes him as the inspiration behind the 1976 movie, The Town That Dreaded Sundown. But why does no one know who he really is? On the Texas side of the Texas-Arkansas border sits the small town of Texarkana, and since 1946, it's been home to one of America's most notorious unidentified serial killers. It's the night of February 22, 1946. Jimmy Hollis and his girlfriend, Mary Jean Leary, pull up to a secluded area of town called Lover's Lane for a night of romance. The two are getting romantic, doing things that couples in the 40s did, when suddenly, out of nowhere, a man walks up to the vehicle. At first, it appears to be an armed robbery. The attacker beats Jimmy Hollis and then molests Leary. The attacker then goes off and leaves the young couple to die, except they survive. Hollis and Leary immediately tell the police what has happened. Soon after, the local newspaper, the Texarkana Gazette, picks up the story. No one can really find any leads. There's no real witness of the attacker, nothing left behind. The town brushes off the attack and moves on. That is, until one month later. When the attacker strikes another couple, believes no one alive to tell the tale. On March 24th, Richard Griffin and his girlfriend Polly Ann Moore had the same idea as the previous couple. They decided to take a romantic drive down another similar secluded road in order to spend some time alone together. Before the couple knows it, the attacker comes out of nowhere and shoots them dead. The couple's car was a little bit closer to the main road this time, and because of that, a passing driver saw it on the side of the road and pulled over to see what happened. When he walked up on the car, he couldn't believe what he saw inside. Richard Griffin and Polly Ann Moore had been shot in the back of the head, execution style. Soon after, police were on the scene and attempting to investigate the area. They had determined that Polly Ann Moore was killed outside of the car, then wrapped in a blanket and carried back to the car to be put in the back seat. Of course, when her body was transported to be examined, the coroner made an error, which prevented police from examining her for any signs of sexual assault. Since the attack was so similar to the one a month before, Texarkana police believed they were dealing with a single person. That led to a huge manhunt, searching for the killer. Texarkana police called in assistance from a number of nearby counties, some of them even in Arkansas. Finally, the police had to call in the Texas Rangers to help with the search. Police questioned several different suspects, but unfortunately weren't able to find the killer. A $500 reward, which today would be worth just under $7,000, was offered. Police questioned several different suspects, but unfortunately weren't able to find the killer. A $500 reward, which today would be worth just under $7,000, was offered for any information on who the killer could be. But once again, no one came forward with any useful information. The third attack came in the early morning hours of April 13th. Betty Jo Booker had just wrapped up a night of playing saxophone with her band at a Texarkana club before hopping in the car with her friend Paul Martin. 
Unfortunately, neither Betty nor Paul would make it home that night. By sunrise, both were dead. Paul Martin's body was the first to be found, this time on the side of the road. Like the murders before him, he had been shot many times in the head. Mary Booker's body was eventually found by a search party. Many hours after Paul had been found, something was different this time though. Mary was found two miles from where Paul's body was. Even though some police reports were contradicting, they had determined that Mary had been sexually assaulted before murdered. Citizens of Texarkana immediately began to worry. They had a serial killer in their town. Police required more help, so they called in more rangers, including the famous ranger, Captain M.T. Lone Wolf Gonzalez. Suspects were interviewed and even more reward money was offered. But just like before, the police were unable to find any helpful information. Police did interview a particular suspect who they thought might be their guy. They had interviewed a man who tried to sell a saxophone at a local pawn shop shortly after Mary Booker was killed. When police went in to arrest him, they found bloody clothes in his hotel room. But it turned out to be his own blood. The man explained to police that he'd been in a bar fight the night before, and that's how he wound up with blood on his shirt. The police eventually had to let him go. They couldn't find a single amount of evidence that positively tied the man to the crimes. Fast forward a few weeks later. On the night of May 3rd, the killer attacked again. He was getting brave. Virgil and Katie Starks were preparing to call it a day when multiple gunshots came flying through their living room window. Virgil was struck in the back of the head by a bullet and killed instantly. Katie, in a panic, quickly made an effort to call the police, but before she could pick up the phone, the killer had entered the home and shot her twice in the face. Katie had somehow survived the attack and managed to escape the killer. Unfortunately, she wasn't able to get a good look at his face due to all the blood pouring into her eyes. She ran to a nearby neighbor's house and passed out from the blood loss. Terror quickly spread through Texarkana. Police had issued curfews and set up blockades. The Texarkana citizens began boarding up their windows, buying guns and guard dogs, buying heavy-duty locks. Businesses even closed in the early evening, turning Texarkana into a ghost town by sunset. Police from surrounding counties patrolled the area every day and night. Radio stations broadcasted requests for donations in order to up the reward fund. The citizens even began to blame each other and start vicious rumors. The newspaper had donned the killer with a new nickname, the Phantom Killer. He had become a real-life monster lurking one night every month in search of his new victims. But suddenly, just as quickly as the attacks began, they stopped. Months passed without an attack from the Phantom. Police continued to interview suspects, but most of them turned out to be people just looking for fame or recognition. Some unfortunate suspects were just arrested at the wrong place at the wrong time. A few months had passed without an attack, so in the summer of 1946, the Texas Rangers and neighboring county police returned to their homes. Amateur detectives continued to look for the killer, but found nothing. Even to this day, the phantom killer has yet to be found. So like I mentioned earlier, the 1976 movie The Town That Dreaded Sundown once again brought interest into the case. 
a new generation of people would be reintroduced to the killer, even if it was behind the lens of Hollywood. Still, no one really knows the true identity of the Phantom Killer, leaving him as one of America's most notorious serial killers. And that concludes this week's episode of Chills. Thank you for listening, everyone. Be sure to follow us on Spotify to be notified when we release a new episode. You could also leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Instagram at ChillsPodcastNP. We're still accepting listener stories, so be sure to write in yours at ChillsPodcastNP at gmail.com. Join us next week where we cover sleep paralysis. Thanks for listening, everyone. We will see you next Monday.